These four words could ruin your relationships. Now, if they come to mind while I'm talking over the next minute or so, please do not speak them out loud. I will cue you when it's your turn. But these four words could ruin your relationship because sometimes in life you can see something coming and you warn the other person. I mean, you tell them exactly what is going to happen, but they don't listen to you. They don't heed your wisdom. They think they can avoid that outcome. They think that that you're not that smart that you can't see the future. And so they plunge forward anyway. And then exactly what you said was going to happen, happens. And in that moment, you are incredibly tempted to open your mouth, to validate and verify and vindicate yourself. But just so you know, these four words could ruin your relationship. But let's be honest. We've all said them. And what are those four words? I told you so. Oh, man. Those four words, they feel so good. Mm. Man, it feels so good to be right sometimes. It feels so good to like know it was coming and say it was coming and then be able to say afterwards, I told you so. But if you're like me, you've used these words and then watched them make you feel oh so not good. Do so much damage. Pull apart a relationship. Because we don't say these words in humility and love. We say these words in arrogance and pride. We say these words because we want the other people to know that we're right. Put it this way. You want them to know that you know that they know that you told them so. (laughs) It isn't as much that you were right. It's that they know you're right. And that's why if you hear nothing else today, just beware of using those four words. One of the people who uses these four words in human history is Jonah. And if you have experienced how I told you so has hurt your marriage or hurt your relationship with your kids or hurt your relationship with your friends or your coworkers, can you imagine telling the God of the universe, I told you so? Because friends, that's exactly what we're going to see today. If you're new to Cornerstone, we've been in a series for the last three or four weeks called Rediscovering Jonah. Because Jonah is the story that many of us have heard in culture or seen in movies or grew up with a felt board in Sunday school and, and we saw it. But, but as we get older, when we dive back into Jonah's book and we rediscover things there, we go, whoa, there is so much more here than the story of a man and a fish. There's so much more here than I thought there was. And so I hope over the last few weeks you've been rediscovering Jonah or maybe discovering it for the first time. 
Grateful for my friend Jeff, who was here last week. Um, I'm grateful for the way that you guys encourage and support when I bring in people to help me find a sustainable rhythm of preaching. Um, it's always good when I bring people in because they want to come back, which to me is a good sign. Um, and so thank you for encouraging them well. But today we're going to continue. We've got two more weeks in the series, this week and next week. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4 today. And we're going to be in this chapter for the next two weeks. We're going to kind of break it into two pieces and, and as we're in Jonah 4 today, what we're going to do with the first part of it is I'm going to share with you four lessons from the worst prophet ever. Because I believe that with all of the prophets that we see in the Old Testament, Jonah is the worst. And he's the worst for a few reasons. I mean, he's the worst, and it's by a, what my dad would call a country mile. I mean, it's not a close race. But to understand Jonah, as you've been saying in the series, it's important that we understand another story that happens in the Bible, and that's in Luke 15. Uh, if you know the story of what happens in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables. He tells a story about a woman who loses a coin in her house, and she tears her house apart. We, we hear the story about a, a, a person who uh, loses... I just went blank on it. She loses something else. There's another lost thing. I'm just telling you, I don't remember. I gave up coffee last year and the brain just still hasn't caught up yet. But most important, it's a lost sheep. And then, uh, then, there, then there's the story of what's called the lost son. And I will just tell you that when your Bible was written, there were not chapters and verses and there were not headings. So we're starting in chapter four, but when this book was written, it wasn't like a chapter. It was just the story. And so in the Bible, the, the editors added a title, the parable of the prodigal son, which is true, but I think a better title is the parable of the loving father. Because the parable in Luke 15 is not really about the sons, it's about the father who represents God. And in that story, we've been telling you in the series that, that in many ways, there's these two sons. The younger son really resembles Jonah at the beginning of the story. The beginning of Jonah, Jonah runs away from God. He flees God. He, he doesn't want to do what God wants. And, and so he's thrown into the sea and a whale swallows him. It's similar to the younger son who says, God, Dad, I want your money. I want your stuff. If you would just die, it'd be great. But since you're not dying, give me your money. And so he goes away and he spends it all. And he wakes up, not in the belly of the whale, but in a pigsty, and then he comes back home. And that really is Jonah in Jonah 1 and 2. Well, today as we dive into Jonah 4, we're going to see that by the end of this book, Jonah's resembling the other brother. And here's what we read in Luke 15. It says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So the older son summoned some of the servants and questioned what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he, this is the older brother, became angry and didn't want to go into the party. So his father came out into the field and he pleaded with him. But the older son replied to the father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, when he comes home, you've slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The first lesson from the worst prophet ever is this, that we often start out as the younger brother, only to later become the older brother. 
Jonah at the beginning of Jonah is the younger brother. He's running from God. He's fleeing God. But by the end of the book, what we're going to see today is that he becomes the older brother angry at God. Now you might say, Scott, why is Jonah so angry with God? Well, to do that, we've got to read a little bit of chapter 3, which we're going to do because you don't have to just read the Bible in chapters because it wasn't written that way. In Jonah 3.10, this is what it says. God saw their actions. This is from last week's message, if you missed it. Their actions, the Ninevites, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he threatened them with, and he did not do it. That was last week's message. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He says, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They fast for three days. No water, no food. God sees their actions, and he doesn't bring that destruction. But chapter 4 tells us, Jonah seeing this, was greatly displeased, and he became furious. Let me translate that for you a different way. Jonah turned from his anger, and turned towards his anger, and yet God turned from his. The people repent, they, they relent, and God goes, no, I'm not going to give them justice. I'm going to give them grace. And Jonah goes, no, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. If you're not going to get angry, I'm going to get angry. If you're not going to bring justice, then somebody's going to have to do it. Jonah went and he did exactly what God said, and an amazing thing happened. The, the most wicked, vile, violent, corrupt, bloodthirsty empire on earth repented. Amazing that God would do that. And that action... That incredible response from God, it leads to incredible rage in Jonah. See, I, I told you that, that the beginning that, that Jonah told God, I told you so, that's putting it mildly. That's putting it extremely mildly. If, if you have your Bible open, it says that he became greatly displeased and he became furious. The most literal translation of the Hebrew in verse 1 is this. Jonah became evil with the evil he saw. This is not your run-of-a-mill temper tantrum or outburst. In the original language, it said his anger and his furiousness and his displeasure was so great that he became evil with what? With the evil he saw. What is he looking at? The activity of God. And Jonah in that moment looks at what God does and he says what God did was evil. That's why I say he's the worst prophet ever. Because in the scriptures you don't see any other prophets saying that a holy God does evil. Tim Keller writing on this remarks, when Jonah saw God refusing to be violent with the violent, he became violently angry. Because again, this book isn't about Jonah. It's about God. Who is this God? What is he like? What is his heart? What is his character? 
And to Jonah, he sees God acting in a way that he cannot reconcile with what he believes about God. And so when God gives mercy to the violent, Jonah says, I'm going to be what God should have been. And in that moment, he resembles the older brother. Standing out in the field, refusing to go into the party, and shaming and chastising the father for giving grace and mercy. And here's the place where all of that intersects with us. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a period of time, especially one that is now in years or decades, your great danger, my great danger, is becoming like the older brother. Chastising God for being too merciful. Chastising God for being too gracious. Lecturing God on what he should have done if he was holding true to what's right. And what's fascinating is if we go back in all of our histories, we started as the younger brother. We were the one who needed grace. We were the one who needed mercy. We were the one who said, I want nothing to do with you, God. I'm going to go my own way. And we started there, and the only reason we are here is because God's heart is mercy and grace. That he is loving and kind. As Romans 2, 4 says, it was God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We start out as the younger brother only to later become the older brother. And as crazy as it sounds, we are tempted to be just like Jonah, chastising God. And here it continues, verse 2. So Jonah prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is as I told you so. That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Number two, the area where God is too much for us often reveals the area where our hearts have experienced too little. The area where we find God being too much or he's too much for us is often the exact same place where we have experienced too little. Now, Jonah here in Jonah 4.2 is quoting one of the most famous and um, notorious or noteworthy moments in the history of the people of Israel. In Exodus 34, Moses is on Mount Sinai. And he comes down with the two stone tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. And he hears this noise coming from the valley and he looks down and the people, while he was up getting the the law from God, have taken all of the gold that the Egyptians gave them and turned it into a golden calf. And in that context... God speaks to, to Moses about who he is. And this is what God says. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. 
seems like Jonah 4 right here. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the fourth, third, and fourth generation. This same kind of line and refrain about God's character is repeated in Nehemiah 9, Psalm 103, Psalm 105, Joel 2, 2 Peter 3, all over the Bible. This refrain is repeated. That the Lord is, is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. But what's so interesting is that when Jonah here in Jonah 4, 2, when he quotes from Exodus 34, he doesn't quote the full text. He quotes that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and compassionate, but he leaves out the part where God clearly says to Moses, I hold those who are sinful accountable. Jonah left out the final part about God dealing with the guilty just as he left the words repentance and forgiveness from his sermon last week. The message to, to Nineveh wasn't, God has sent me so that you are not destroyed, so there's time for you to repent and be forgiven. What does he say to Nineveh? 40 days and you'll be destroyed. He doesn't want them to know about the repentance and forgiveness. That's why Jeff, as we call it, the worst sermon ever. He's the worst missionary ever. He doesn't even include the important part. It's all bad news, but no good news. And what Jonah does is he quotes God's word back to God as if God didn't know it. <laughs> and he leaves out the important part. Did you know that in Scripture there's only one other person who quotes God's word back to him out of context? Satan. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and Satan quotes God's word back to him. Incomplete. I don't know about you. But if the only person in recorded biblical history who has done something is Satan, I'm going the other way. I'm doing something else. Jonah is setting a pattern that Satan will follow. That's why I call him the worst prophet ever. Again, remarking on this, Timothy Keller says, if Jonah in that moment had to choose between the security of Israel and loyalty to God while well, he was ready to push God away, because that's what this is about. That's why he is so violently angry with God. That's why he is, is pushing God away. Because what God did was God gave mercy and grace to his enemies. And Jonah could not compute, he could not reconcile in his mind the God that he believed and followed with giving his enemies anything but violence and justice. And so if he had to choose his love for his people and his love for his nation or his loyalty to God when push came to shove, he chose his nation. And he rejected God. Because this is the one thing he couldn't give up. 
a God who would side with his enemies over his own people. And again, I don't want to just put Jonah in the spot where he's the bad guy. I wonder for you, what goes in this blank for you? I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X. I won't serve you, God, if you take away X. I won't serve you, God, if you don't do Maybe we have a different thing than Jonah did. But if we have a thing, then we're just like Jonah. And I think it's impossible to read Jonah, especially at the time that we're living in in human history, and and not touch on this. Jonah, in some ways, is, is a rebuke, not of Jonah, but the entire nation of Israel. The, the, the subject of the book is Jonah, but the audience of Jonah is the whole nation. Long before we read the Bible, Jonah was not given to us. It was given to the people of Israel as a prophetic word and a rebuke that they had come to the place where they saw themselves differently than how God saw them. And that had led to a belief about God that was inaccurate that we see personified and embodied in Jonah. And and what we see here is that it's not a sin to love your nation, but when your love for your country and your people rivals or displaces God, your love is disordered and sinful. So Jonah is not a book against patriotism. Jonah is a book against anything dislodging or displacing God as our ultimate source of love and loyalty. And so you can call it nationalism. You can call it chosenism. You can call it whatever adjective you want. I don't care what adjective you use. But if anything is more important to you than God, and if you say God has to do this in order for me to follow him, you're in a place where your love is out of order and it's sinful. Because for Jonah, God's grace for Nineveh was too much and his justice wasn't enough. God, you're too gracious to those people and you're not just enough. And the fact that he saw God as too gracious shows that, again, as we said a couple weeks ago, Jonah hasn't really understood and comprehended God's grace for him. And yet he was the prophet. He was the one who was giving the word of God. And I just want to ask you a question. What happens when you read this book? What happens when you read this book? What is the outcome in your heart when you open this book? Is it that you feel better about yourself as compared to others? Oh man, those morons, I would never struggle with that. Oh man, those guys, you know, that person, they really need to read this because they really need this. God, you tell them. Friends, reading the Bible is not a sin. Reading the Bible is never a sin. However, it is possible to read the Bible in a way that produces sin. And when you read the Bible and it makes you self-righteous or arrogant or proud... 
you are sinning and reading the Bible wrong. Because what's happening here with Jonah is he is looking at the actions of God with self-righteousness and judgment. And when you are judging God, friends, you're always in the wrong seat. And what we see here is the area where God is too much for us, that often reveals the area where our hearts have experienced too little of him. So Jonah goes on. He says, and now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Number three, experiencing and living from God's grace are very different things. Experiencing God's grace and living from God's grace are very, very different things. Catch what Jonah says here. After he judges God and becomes violently evil in his anger towards God, he says to God, and now take my life, God. Kill me now. Because it's better for me, now that this has happened, for me to die than it is for me to live. Jonah would rather die than live in a world where his enemy received God's mercy, compassion, and grace. God, if that's how you're going to act in this world, I don't want to be in it. God, if that's what you're going to do, then take me out. And what's so fascinating, if you've been reading through Jonah and you've been here for this series, is just two chapters ago in Jonah 2.2, Jonah prayed to live. He's drowning in the ocean. He's falling down into the sea. He says, the seaweed is coming around me. And he prays to God, save me. And God sends the whale. And now two chapters later, he's like, forget that. I want to die. He would rather die than live in a world where God acts like this. And you go, how is that possible? He experienced God's grace. He was a prophet of God. He saw God move. Because friends, experiencing it in a moment and continuing to live from it are different. Let me show you a bridge right here. This bridge is a portion of Interstate 79 between Pittsburgh and Lake Erie. For many years, this bridge remained partially constructed. Because what happened is all of these posts that were placed in these swamps would be planted and posted, and they would be preparing to set the bridge on top of it, except the posts would continue sinking. And again and again, they would go back thinking they had hit bedrock only for the posts to sink again. And it took many years for this road to be completed because as deep as they thought the bedrock was, it was actually deeper. And until the post had met the bedrock, they couldn't put the bridge on top of it because the soil would shift and the road would be unsteady. That is the perfect metaphor for Jonah's heart and for many of our hearts. That we've experienced God's grace, but it hasn't truly sunken down to bedrock. And so we're still living out of an old way of view that we think we've done better than other people. Therefore, we're more worthy of God's love than those people. Instead of realizing that all, the only reason any of us are here is grace. 
The only reason any of us can sing is that God has taken our grave and turned it into gardens. We have no place to be proud because just as much of our sin as someone else's sin is the reason that he hung there and he bled and he died. And that's why for Jonah, even though he was swallowed by the whale, he still isn't living from and basing his life on and those posts are not buried deep into the bedrock of his soul based upon grace. Even in Jonah 2, this is what he says. He says, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Even from within the belly of the whale, he's judgmental. Jonah is still fixated on others getting justice rather than where he received grace. He still doesn't get it. He's in the belly of the whale. And he's fixated on all the ways that Nineveh is evil. And we see that Jonah still is learning because God in this story is quick to offer compassion while Jonah is quick to offer condemnation. God is quick to offer compassion because God at his core, what does the text say? Slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. That's who God is. So when God sees someone come in repentance, boom, compassion. Jonah is not that. So what does he do? Condemnation. He is so fixated on other people getting justice that he will compromise the very heart of God. Miroslav Volf is a theologian who lived through the many years of war in the Bosnian Peninsula. And reflecting on what he learned from that incredibly racist and violent period of history, he wrote, if you want justice and nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. If you believe that you are justified and righteous and you are insistent on justice, there is a danger that eventually you will resort to unjust means to accomplish a just end. And this is Jonah. It's been a lot of bad news in this message so far. Number four is good news. Number four the Lord asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And here's the lesson. We serve a God who is full of grace and compassion towards older and younger brothers. Yeah, Jonah is self-righteous and violent and arrogant and proud and condemning. And so what God says to Jonah is he says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And you got to wait till next week to get the question answered. Come back and God will answer his own question. But one thing I want to be really clear on is, as we kind of bring this to a close, anger is not wrong. God asked Jonah here, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't ask him, is it good that you're angry? Because what we see in the scriptures is we see that Jesus gets angry. The beginning and end of his ministry, he, he clears the temple because it's been corrupted. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So because there's an and there, 
There's an idea that you can be angry and not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not sinful. It's possible, but as you guys know, it's far from easy. It's way easier to be angry and sin. And friends, why is Jonah so angry? Essentially what he's saying, the the way I would answer the question if I didn't have the rest of the book, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is Jonah has essentially said all throughout this book, how could my God do this? God, how could you be like this? How could you allow this? How could you work like this? And God's asking Jonah, Jonah, do you have a right to ask that question? And how have you been asking that question? Jonah doesn't ask God questions with curiosity and humility. He asks God questions with condemnation and arrogance. And I wonder for you today, what are you asking God? Have you been carrying a question like Jonah has, a question that you've been fixated on or frustrated with, something that God either has done or hasn't done? Some way that you wanted God to move or that he didn't move? Some question that you've been taking to him and laboring over in prayer? God, how long and how do you, are you going to solve this? And God, what are you doing? And how could you allow this? And what's going on here? And if you're this, how about that? I wonder, what are you asking God today? And how are you asking Again, it's not a sin to be angry. It is a sin to be arrogant, though. And what I see all throughout the pages of this book, from beginning to end, is God often responds to questions based upon the one asking and how one asks. All throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus respond to people based upon why they're asking. If it's a Pharisee and he's trying to be trapped, he answers it one way. If it's someone who's coming in curiosity and humility, he answers it another way. The reason why I said the end of this is good news is because if you're like me, you're like, how is Jonah's book in the Bible? Like after all of this, why would this book be here? Well, the only person who could have told this story fully is Jonah. So he had to have consented at some point, you know, either written himself or told the story to somebody else. And all of us, I believe, have a little bit of Jonah in us. A little bit, sometimes a lot. All of us at one point are the younger brother and many of us at one point wake up and realize, oh, I'm the older brother. And here's the good news. In spite of how sinful Jonah is, in spite of what a racist Jonah is, in spite of all the stuff God has done for Jonah, in spite of the fact that Jonah continues to go on, in a sense, accusing God, angry at God, what is God doing? What is God's response to Jonah? He's still totally committed to Jonah. He's still working with Jonah, and he still hasn't given up on Jonah. Let me put it this way. There's a party that God is throwing. 
We obviously know that younger brothers get invited or else none of us would be here. The good news is that God also invites older brothers to the party. If you're judgmental, if you think you're better than other people, if you think you deserve something from God that you have a hard time giving somebody else, if you wonder when God is going to let them have it because they deserve it, and you're not considering what you deserve, there's an invitation for you to leave the field and come into the party. We'll talk about what happens with Jonah in the end, but right now I'm not concerned about where Jonah ends up. I'm concerned where you end up. And if you wake up today or this week and realize, oh man, I'm the older brother. I'm Jonah. This is not a message of condemnation and shame. It's a message of invitation. The party's open for you too. Let's talk about some next steps this morning. First one, and this is right on where we've been talking about, I'd encourage you to ask yourself this week, am I more like the younger brother or the older brother in Luke 15? Whose position are you more in these days? Which one do you find more of in yourself? And as I often tell you, if you don't know, the people around you do, so ask them. Number two, I'd encourage you to ask this question you've been asking all series, who is my Nineveh? And some of you have, have told me you've figured out who it is. That's good, but don't stop there. Identify your next step in response to that answer. So if you figure out, hey, these are the people that I believe are outside of God's love, mercy, compassion, then, then what do you do with that? It's good to know knowledge is the, half the battle, but it's only half. What's your next step? And then I'd encourage you, number three, tell a friend about the questions you're currently asking God and discuss how you're seeking those answers. Often we stop when it comes to prayer with the simple, easy prayer request. This person's health, that person's surgery, this person's thing, that person's thing. What about you? Not what are you praying for, but what are you praying about? What are the questions you're asking God right now? And how can they come alongside you as you ask? Like I said, next week we'll discover how God answers his own question. And we'll close out this series. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the fact that your word shows us that you did not give up on Jonah. You remain committed to Jonah even when he turned his back on you. Even when he indicted you, condemned you, and accused you, there was still a place for him in your family and in your story. And that's good news because that means there's a place for us. In the places where we've missed it, seen it wrong, seen you wrong, in the places where we've become the older brother and become opposed to your very heart, there's a place for us to wake up and to come home. Jesus, for my, for my friends who've been in the field with their arms crossed, judging and condemning, I pray that they would receive your invitation to come into the party. In the places where we have put ourselves in a position that only you should be, 
I pray that we'd repent and experience your mercy and grace. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. We thank you because we need that today. And we pray that as we're rediscovering Jonah, we're rediscovering your good news and your heart. Pray that you'd help us to see clearly and have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us. Help us to be tenderhearted to the movement of your spirit. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. We don't deserve everything you've given us. So help us to receive it as the gift that it is. In your name we pray, amen.